Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Cool. So we're in the middle of a little series uh, that we're sort of calling the Shema series. Uh, Shema is a Hebrew uh, word that just means hear or listen. Uh, And it's part of an ancient Hebrew prayer that we're going to talk about. But uh, the idea is that as we we begin to sort of engage with this, as we begin to engage with sort of this word and the understanding of it, that we expect that just like we prayed, that uh, as, as we ask the Lord to speak to us and cause us to be able to hear and listen, that that listening would be transmitted into obedience, that we would actually uh, begin to become the things that we're hearing from the Lord and the things that we're speaking over ourselves in our, our own lives. Where, where this started for me, and this is just a little bit of recap for those of you that uh, haven't been here, was uh, with a book I read this summer called Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. And uh, I figured I needed some secrets to self-control. Um, one of the things, you know, taking the summer uh, was to just say, hey, I've got to reboot some of my spiritual disciplines and uh, go a little bit deeper in terms of building patterns into my life that help me get to a place where I'm eating a little bit healthier, uh, where my devotional life is a little bit more consistent, where I'm stopping less at the uh, A&W drive-through, as we talked about in the first session, uh, and where I'm, I'm, I'm sort of less covetous, less less wanting just sort of unreasonable things, less materialistic. So my heart is really following after God. Um, and, uh, and so that's sort of what we're talking about. Um, and a lot of it comes just out of a really, really simple uh, devotional practice of Jesus. And that's sort of the point of the book that, that we saw on the previous screen. Um, the, the book is really just looking at science and looking at the scriptures and sort of saying, hey, in order to really change and really form habits and really begin to be transformed to become a new person, you really have to sort of build one discipline upon another. You have to build one strength upon another strength. Um, and so if I want to do, uh, how many of you like love like your New Year's resolutions are great. How many of you do like a list of 27 New Year's resolutions every year? I will lose 10 pounds. I will read a book. I will, what, you know, I will save money for the future. I will not waste money on what, and you just build this whole list of things, whole list of habits. I will not eat gluten. I will eat minimal gluten. I will eat extra gluten, whatever your resolution may be. And, uh, and we sort of mask these things on us. And I will exercise. I will do like a full-on high-intensity interval training workout every single morning. And we just build these things on each other. And we, we get into, uh, you know, week one, week two of, of January. And it's like these things are dropping off like fast. Right, they're just hitting the floor behind us, you know, day by day, because we can't sustain that much. And the book is saying, you know what, willpower is something that is kind of like a, a, a limited thing. Like you only really have so much. You guys know that full well. We wake up in the morning and it's easy to resist having a donut, but at four o'clock when you're done a hard day at work and there's a drive-through there and you're, you've got an hours-long commute, that coffee and donut are looking a lot easier to take on, right? Uh, because we've used up a lot of willpower. Uh, and, and ability during the day. And so really building habits and building uh, those things comes, you know, from uh, taking your time and being a little bit methodical, a little bit careful about how we do it. And so that's just sort of what I was thinking about this summer a little bit. And uh, in doing that, I came across the question, like, what was Jesus' habit like in terms of prayer? 
what did, what did Jesus pray every day? What did Jesus do every day? And we came across this, uh, this simple prayer that we see in Mark 12, which is actually uh, in the Old Testament as well. And it comes up in the form of a question and a discussion that Jesus is having with one of the scribes. This is the same text we read the first two weeks. We're going to read it again and just take something fresh and new from it. So let's just read together. Mark chapter 12, 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. This is Jesus arguing with, uh, with some other uh, leaders. And seeing that he had answered them well, the scribe asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered with the Shema. Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other greater commandment than these. And this would have been really, really familiar to the scribe who is listening to this. Because it would have been something that he would have prayed every morning of his life and every night of his life before he went to bed. And Jesus would have prayed it every morning and every evening. Uh, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai and just prayed it in Hebrew like that. And because that's who they were, they were Jewish people. And uh, so we're left with this. We're left with this prayer that Jesus prayed every day. Why did he pray it? Why was it important to him? Uh, we, you know, big theological questions. Why did Jesus pray in the first place? What did he need to? He was God, so who the heck was he praying to himself? You know, but, uh, but he did have an interaction with the Holy Spirit. Like there's something about his body and the way he worked and the disciplines uh, that he had to connect intentionally with his father. And he went away to pray. And he probably prayed this prayer every morning. Uh, and written into it is this, uh, blessed be the name of your glorious kingdom forever and ever. That's a part that would not be written by a Hebrew person, but it would be whispered as he prayed it. So just imagine Jesus praying this every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of your glorious kingdom forever and ever. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And that was right out of Deuteronomy. And Jesus modified the prayer. Um, in terms of the way we see it expressed in the book of Mark and added the I concept of mind, which a Greek person would have need to, needed to understand. And then he did this really radical part and added, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that wasn't part of the Shema, but it was something that appears uh, later in the text. And Jesus sort of says, hey, let's do the love your God part. Let's do the vertical part, but let's make it just as important to pray the horizontal part. So Jesus calls us uh, to one another in a radical way. Anyway, for me, uh, this practice of doing uh, the Shema, of, of beginning to pray it every day, the hope is that it would build something into me. Because when you pray things and declare them over yourself, um, I think there's a way in which they have actually a prophetic impact in your life. If you're saying to yourself, hear, O Israel, hear, O Aaron, the Lord your God is one, you hear it, Right? You hear the word of God and it begins to change you. And, and for me, I'm, I'm, I'm already beginning to find some strange things happening in my life. Um, and, and this is something that uh, the author of a book called The Jesus Creed, Scott McKnight, said. And he challenges all his students to do the same thing. Pray the Shema every day and just watch what happens. And I'm starting to see some crazy things. Like I'm picking up hitchhikers again. <laughs> Some of you know the story. I picked up a hitchhiker a little over a year ago, and in a Tim Hortons, the person you know, came across the table with a knife and, and tried to stab me. And I didn't pick up hitchhikers a lot after that. Um, but I'm picking up hitchhikers again. There's something in me which, uh, you know, out of this prayer that says, you know, you shall love your neighbors yourself, where I'm starting to see people in a way that I haven't necessarily seen them before.
And I had an amazing experience last week. Um, you know, we often see people that are sort of looking for handouts or, or people who have needs or people who are in distress. And, and I don't know if you're like me, I'm a pastor, I should be super compassionate all the time, but sometimes uh, I'm, I, I'm not. Sometimes there's that weakness in me. I'll, I'll go past that person and I won't actually see them. I, I'll, I'll want to get on with my business or the important thing that I'm doing. And I don't see who they are. And, I, and as I walked into uh, Independent, uh, grocer to pick up, I don't know, cheese or something like that this week, uh, I walked in and there was a woman sitting there uh, by the door with a little sign, please help, I need food. And very often I would just honestly, I'm telling you the brokenness of me, I would just walk past her. And uh, this, this week I, I didn't. I looked at her and having prayed this, prayed this prayer, you know, every morning and every night now for a little over a month, I almost in a supernatural way saw my face superimposed over hers. And I saw myself sitting where she was sitting, looking at me and saying, would this person, could this person help me? And I had to love her as I would want myself to be loved. And so I, uh, I stopped and I said, yeah, uh, can, can I help you? What can I do? And through her uh, sort of fairly strong French and through Arabic and my broken French and her little bit of English discovered that she was um, a refugee. She was a person who was um, uh, a Syrian person who was in Carlton Place and their family had moved here and they'd had some support in the beginning but some of the support that they had from the government uh, sort of dried up and and they were really struggling. They were struggling to find uh, their way forward and he was looking for work and she was with her kids and and they just there were just things that she needed like please could, could you buy me some groceries for my children. And, and broken me, old me, there's part of me that's like, could be suspicious and could be saying, man, like, is this a scam? Like, is somebody trying to scam me out of cheese? <laughs> you know, which is just ridiculous, right? Because there's this broken and selfish thing inside of me. And for all I know, maybe she was scamming me. I don't know. I don't, but, but I actually didn't care because I just saw that there was somebody there with a need that I could maybe meet. And so I walked through the grocery store. Uh, with this woman and we put some groceries in the cart and we went down to the clothing area which was a really bizarre conversation because she had two daughters and a son and I was looking close for them and she was asking me what clothes looks good on a child this big and I'm like uh pink for the girl and right like oh my to pick out clothes for this woman's kids right like what the heck's going on right but she's so appreciative and so grateful and, and, and she kept we kept trying to understand what she was saying but she kept sort of sort of pointing up god bless you god will bless you god will bless you and finally I, finally i just said to her i said i said jesus i know jesus will bless me i know jesus will bless me and she said jesus you follow jesus and she just blew up in the store. She went inside out because she'd found another follower of Jesus who was helping her and was cared about her. And honestly, I don't think if I hadn't been praying this prayer prophetically to myself, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I'm not sure I would have seen her. I would walk by her and not even seen her. We need to be people who allow the word of God, allow the scriptures to transform us and to make us new. 
And so we look at this. We look at these commands that we pray over ourselves. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I'm just asking myself, what, what do these things mean? What did they mean to Jesus when they prayed him? What did they mean to his followers as looking forward in terms of how Paul prayed this prayer and others prayed this prayer? What's the deep meaning in these things that, that are meant to be transformative and to change us? And so we looked um, at, at just at the word love last week in part, like just pulling apart this text. And we saw that there is like a chosen passion that bringing from the Hebrew concept of love into the New Testament concept uh, context, that love is meant to be like a passionate love, a love that is romantic, a love that is driven, a love that is this uncorked affection that we're supposed to carry for God. And yet at the same time, it's covenantial and chosen and intentional. So we're called to an intentional, covenantal, passionate love. And we love the Lord our God that way. And we love him uh, with our whole heart. And as we talked about last week, this week we're talking about, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. What does that mean? How is your soul different from your heart? How does this whole thing work? Love the Lord, your God, intentionally, again, and passionately with your soul. An encouraging thought here is that it's actually possible to do that. If he's calling us to do it, it is possible to love him with our soul, whatever our soul might be. So yeah, great. Let's love him with our whole soul. Done. Now, if anybody would direct me towards the, my soul so I could find out where it is and what it is and how it works, that would be great. Do any of you have a clear definition, idea of what your soul is? Right, there's huge, there's broad definitions. It's all over the scripture. Sometimes the soul is synonymous with heart. Sometimes the soul is different from your heart, and depending on where you're reading in the Old Testament. Uh, there's different concept of it in the Greek, and how do you sort of work all these things together? And so we're just going to pull together some of the meaning of that word soul uh, from the scripture. Um, you'll see on your screen, over here is uh, the Hebrew word, which is nefesh, for soul, which really means it's your living being. So it's the breath that's in you. It's yourself. It's your creatureness. Um, and that, that word uh, nefesh is actually translated very, very often in the Old Testament as creature. Uh, your creatureness, your createdness, your madeness, something that is uniquely you that you didn't have anything to do with forming. It's your breath. It's given. Um, and then you add into it the Greek. The Greek word psyche is where we get psychology, right? It talks about your unique personality, uh, your unique personality traits, uh, your Enneagram 8, your Disc D, your whatever it is that you are, your INTJ, your, you know, any one of these, your 3393, whatever one of these personality traits are, those things that are sort of unique, that you're sort of born with, that you're sort of designed with, uh, and, and, and add to that your unique story, uh, your soul is really your alive Eunice. It's your alive uh, individuality. It's your alive uniqueness. It's that thing that goes uh, beyond. And so how do you build? Like, there's so many different models of it. If you look in the Old Testament, it's used in different ways uh, than the New Testament. 
And so there's like, how do you build a model of how that works? Do you know where your soul is? Is it here, down here? That's one spot where it could clearly be. We could simplify the definition. It is the bottom of your foot. Um, or is it in your heart? Or where is it? And so there's a whole bunch of different models with circles. And this is just sort of one that I chose. And I, it's my favorite slide of the whole day. Uh, it's entitled, uh, One of Several Overly Simplistic Models of the Human Being Based on Convoluted Interaction Between Greek and Hebrew Words That Seem to Have Dramatically Morphed Throughout the Century therefore it is probably wrong, but we're going to go with it anyway. <laughs> so we're going to use uh, this sort of model to kind of look at what our soul is, just to understand what the heck it is that we're uh, talking about here. Um, the best way to understand it is, uh, in terms of my like pouring through the scriptures all week on it, is your soul is kind of your unique, unique, unique God-given personality or it's a way of being that's actually a culmination of that starting template of this soul that was breathed into you by God when you were created, when you were born. And the sum of the imprints on it by your interactions with the physical and the spiritual. So you were born with a soul that is a unique and beautiful personality, a thing that was designed and made by God, a thing that has traits uh, that cause you to act and respond and behave in certain ways that is different from any other person. It is a beautiful, incredible, and wonderful, unique thing about you. Right? It's a God-given thing. But that soul uh, actually also has imprints on it from your experiences in life. It has imprints on it from traumas that you experienced as a child. It has imprints on you from things that happened to you before you were even really very conscious as a youngster, you know, two, three years old, before your youngest childhood memory experiences begin to form you. Uh, we see certain, ex we see examples of this in the life of, say, somebody who's been adopted and who's been separated from their parents and, and is wrestling with now an attachment disorder because they're having a hard time as a teenager, all of a sudden attaching to the parent that's adopted them because of the trauma of separation that happened to them before they were even aware that they were uh, separated from a parent, before they had language for that at all. So we're impacted by things that have happened in our physical world um, that, that are sort of beyond our control. And then we're impacted by the spiritual world. We're impacted by our interrelationships with God. We're impacted in the spiritual world by the way uh, spiritual forces impact our lives and by the way our spiritual DNA works, by our family of origin issues and all of that. And all of those sort of things come together and, uh, and impact what we call our soul. And again, this is one simplistic way of formulating this, but, but it will help us sort of understand and place it. So we're, we're, we're very, very complex. And the story of our souls is very complex. And some of us have had easy journeys in that way, and some of us have had difficult journeys in that way. But all of that comes together to form that person that you are that is your unique identity right now, that is special and beautiful and lovely and at the same time kind of broken and kind of wounded and a little bit messed up, if we're honest. Does that, does that sound fair for who we are? We're this incredible mixed bag of this beautiful thing that God has made and, and then the, some of the brokenness that has happened to us and some of the beautiful redemptive things that have happened to us. Uh, which leaves us with a real question. So what in the world are we supposed to do with that amazing, special, unique, individual, beautiful, 
uh, fingerprint that is not like any other humans on the planet. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, society has some different views about it. Um, let me just read a few quotes from B.R. Armadecker says this, says, unlike a drop of water which loses its identity when it joins the ocean, man does not lose his being in the society in which he lives. That sounds kind of okay. He's kind of talking about our individuality in society. We're part of culture, but we're separate from it. It kind of makes sense. And then he says this, he takes another step forward. Man's life is independent. He is born not for the development of the society, but for the development of himself. And so we see this as sort of a pretty deeply held uh, individualistic view of who we are as people, that we are absolutely, uh, in the view of society, absolutely independent in some ways, that we are absolutely self-defining, that we are self-making, that we are self-correcting, uh, that we are self-guiding, that we are self-made. That's sort of a view that, that society's in there. It says this, uh, this is uh, Charlotte Bronte. This is, a, this is a wild one. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. Isn't that sweet Jane Eyre and all those nice little novels that the girls all get together to watch <laughs> at my sister's house? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's pretty grim, isn't it? It's pretty grim. It's pretty hopeless. It's, it's pretty dark, right? Yourself is just oriented around you for you, like, like you're all alone. And, and the reality is, is that some of us actually, we, we really have taken this on board as a society. We really feel this at a pretty deep level. Right? We feel pretty isolated and pretty alone a lot of the time. Right? We, we feel like who, like, who else do I have that I really can trust? Who else do I have that I really can rely on? I don't want anybody to impact my destiny. I want to choose for myself. I want to be autonomous. I want to do it my way. Toby picked up a song. We listened to a lot of Frank Sinatra this summer. It's kind of our summer music is to listen to those old crooners. And I can just hear my little guy Toby like shouting at the top of his lungs, I'll do it my way. Right? It's basically this song of this guy reaching the end of his life and has prayed at funerals at all all the time it's like I did it my way like who cares about you guys I did it my way that's how we view uh, the way we operate and the way we move in the world uh, here's Ralph Waldo Emerson the only person you are destined to become is the person you decide to be and again there's something sort of beautiful in this, in the sense that, that there is a way in which we have authority, right? We, we do have authority to make choices. We do have authority to sort of um, navigate our way through the world. We're not without will. We're not without free will. We're not without an ability to, to maneuver. But what I think the Bible is pointing us to, and we're going to look a little bit more at this going forward, is that we're, we're called to a partnership, aren't we? We're called to interaction. We don't actually get to do it completely uh, by ourselves. Your soul is 
the lie here is that your soul is completely disconnected. It is independent. It is by you. It is for you. It is about you. And it is meant to be affected only by you. And any of us who have been hurt or any of us who have been wounded, uh, maybe even wounded in the church or who have been wounded in relationships or who have been wounded, you know, in just the stuff of life, we, we tend to gravitate towards this because we have a, a very, very small circle of trust. That's what it's really about is having a, just a very, very tiny circle of trust. And, and the reality is, though, it's just not actually possible to live that independently. Um, your soul represents your own special, unique identity, but contrary to the current worldview, it simply cannot be s completely self-determined. It's just not possible, realistically, for it to be self-determined. One, you didn't build that template. You didn't breathe your own soul into yourself. That initial makeup, that initial beautiful thing that God put inside you, that personality that you're given as a baby, and we see it. We see personalities in babies who haven't had anything happen to them yet, right? You guys know your own children. I know that my Toby was different than my Jack. They are still arguing about which one is better, but, uh, you know, like they're, they're different young men, like from the very beginning. So you didn't get to build that template that determined... Uh, you didn't get to build the template that determined your gender. You didn't get to build the template that determined how tall you would be. You didn't get to build the template that would determine uh, a lot of those things, right? And you can't completely control how the world interacts with it, right? There are traumas and pains and injuries and sickness and illness and all kinds of things that happen to you that are outside of your control. And if we're honest, all of those things affect our souls. They affect who we are. They affect who we're, we're becoming. They affect who we're, we're being. But we can't leave it just like that and say that we have no control. Right? Because you can make some choices within the parameters that are given to you. You can choose to be in places where people hurt you or don't hurt you. You can choose to be in places where uh, you might worship God on a Sunday morning, or you could choose to be taking in Netflix. So we curate our souls, and some of it is under our control, and some of it simply isn't. But I want to start with this thought that the, that should be affirming and should be encouraging for us. Uh, the initial template was God designed, and it was good. We looked at this text when we looked at, uh, at the heart last week. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. Like God designed something beautiful in you. Now it is uh, tainted and it is broken by the brokenness of the world, but God's intention for you his design for you, his plan for you is exceedingly good. It is fearful and wonderful. It is fearful and wonderful. So what does the Bible say really that it was designed for? Like if it's something that we're supposed to love God with, this incredible, unique unis that's a little battered and bruised, that's partially redeemed. I mean, it's ultimately redeemed. It's ultimately in the hands of the Father. Ultimately, if you've given your life to Jesus, you're on a trajectory to uh, eternity with Him. 
but we are being saved. We are being redeemed. There is brokenness that is being healed. There is this imprint that is being repaired and being fixed. And there is still potential for, for harm and damage to come. We live in this crazy in-between space. But what was this whole sort of unique thing designed for? And that's a question I went to the scriptures with. And, and, and I basically what I did was I did a couple of Bible searches. And, uh, and I pulled out every single place where the word soul was found in the scriptures. To just see like what the mass of it, the most of it, like the most references to the word soul. What, what do I find there? What do I see there? Like what is the essence of this crazy, unique thing about us? What is, it, what is it for, what is it about? And this is, this is what I found, like most consistently, and, and these are just a few examples. My soul thirsts for God. My soul yearns for God. My soul seeks for God. My soul finds rest in God. My soul turns to God. My soul must love the Lord. My soul follows hard after you. My soul cries out for God. My soul must obey. What your soul is absolutely designed for, what your soul, the very essence of who you are is made for, your soul is made and designed to need God. Your soul is designed to need. Your uniqueness your singularity, your aloneness is designed to be with God. Amen. Everything that makes you feel special about yourself has this sort of tornness to it because it also feels, everything that feels special and unique also feels alone. It's meant to be a key and a lock. It's meant to be one side of the Velcro. Your soul is meant to be with God. It's meant to long. It's meant to yearn. It's meant to need Him. And I honestly think that's why it's so complex and so messy and so strange and, and kind of ever-changing. Our experiences ever, ever change it a little bit, don't they? Our memory, our makeup. And God ever shifts and retools and remakes and rebuilds the key to fit it. And we change and we yearn and he fits. And we change and we yearn and he fits. And we change and we thirst after him and he meets the need. And he comes again and again and again and again to be with us. And as we grow and as we're redeemed and as we're transformed, that fit gets ever faster and ever easier and ever better because we become conformed to him. And so that's the challenge for us, is to take this incredible, beautiful, special, wonderful uh, uniqueness of you and to not see it in isolation but to absolutely see it in terms of how it relates to your father. We cannot seek ourselves. We cannot seek our own growth. 
We're just never, ever, ever going to be satisfied with that. We're never, ever going to be happy with it. We just have to seek Him. And so back to the question, how do we love the Lord with all our souls? We have some answers in the book of John. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life. And that's the same word, psyche, soul, for one's friends. If anyone loves his life, his psyche, his soul, he must lose it. For your soul to be what it's meant to be, for your individuality to be what it's meant to be, for your uniqueness to be what it's meant to be, for your personality to be what it's meant to be, it has to be given away. It has to be laid down. And it has to be surrendered. This most treasured thing must be cast into the hands of the Father. And the circle of trust must grow. That's what we're called to. The only way to love the Lord with your whole soul is just to give it away. And so what does that mean uh, for you? Like really when it comes down to, uh, to you. Because we spend an enormous amount of time sort of seeking after understanding uh, of ourselves, of our personalities, who we are. How many of you have done more than five personality tests? I've done like 10 of them. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> We're, we're interested in that, right? We, we, we spend an enormous amount of energy in trying to discover ourselves. And that's okay. Like, that's, that there's, there's value in that. But what it has to be is a discovery of how does myself need God? How does myself fit in community? How does myself fit? It can't just be a self-determined making of self as an end to itself. We're made for others. We're made for God. So I want us to pray this uh, this morning. And when we pray to the part where we come to love the Lord your God with all your soul, I want you to invest that word with uh, the meaning that we've talked about this morning. We have parts about us that we, we feel hurt. We feel like our, we haven't been recognized. We feel like people haven't seen us. We feel like uh, ourselves have been rejected, some of us. We feel like ourselves have been uh, hurt. We feel like ourselves have been wounded. There's so many things that we think about ourselves. But I want us to start this morning with just a fresh view of that and say... I'm just going to take this whole self, this whole messy, crazy thing. And just today, just in this moment, I'm going to give it to Jesus. And then Jesus and I are going to figure out what to do with it together. It's a prayer of surrender. where we've highly valued and treasured our own desires and our own will above all else. We just have to surrender. And the joy is on the other side. Let's stand up.
Father, before we pray this, I ask that you would, uh, you would cause it to activate, that we would actually activate our memory, we, we, you would activate some awareness in us. Activate some awareness of our brokenness, of our messes. As we pray uh, this prayer, this Shema, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, help us to pray it in a way that gives ourselves to you. And Lord, for anyone here who's never done that before, who's never given their life to you, Jesus, who's never begun this process of partnership, of redemption, this process of ongoing salvation with you, I pray that there would be a courageous first step for some. I pray for anyone here who's just felt like their whole life they've just been going it alone. That they would find uh, a partner in you. That they would find the one that their soul longs for. That they would find the one that their soul yearns for in you. That we would be able to lay down our uniqueness and our individuality and really begin to see ourselves as, uh, as one with you. As Jesus prayed for us, that we would be one with him. And that in that, you would just make us new. Let's pray this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So commission us in this, Father. Commission us in this journey. Would you uh, take us, that you've redeemed us by uh, your work on the cross. Would you take us as partners with you into whatever adventures you have for us? Whatever adventures of mission and ministry that you're calling us to, whatever adventures of generosity and hospitality that we never thought we were capable of, would we see the world in a new way because we're seeing ourselves uh, in a new partnership with you? Would you open up possibilities that we'd never imagined because we thought we were alone, but now we're with you? Would you uh, open our hearts to receiving your Holy Spirit, to receiving uh, resource uh, from you that we never imagined we could have? Would you teach us contentment to be found in you? We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our very being. We trust you to determine our identity in partnership with you. We don't hold it. We don't grasp it. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.